Let's talk. Docs. Welcome to Let's Talk Docs, a show where we explore the intersection of technical docs, open source, and community. This is your host, Portia and Eric. Here at Let's Talk Docs, we reach out to folks in the field who are elevating the craft of writing and maintaining docs. You'll hear stories about technologists who focus on fostering a culture of learning and inclusion through documentation. And today we have the pleasure to talk to Zach. Zach is currently a staff technical writer at Stripe, solving complex documentation challenges and serving to mentor other writers. Previously, Zach has worked at Kubernetes and other cloud native projects in the Linux Foundation, API docs at GitHub, Rackspace, and a handful of startups, and freelance technical writing for O'Reilly. In their spare time, Zach knits, plays role-playing games, swims, and grows a garden. Zach, welcome. Thank you, Portia. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. We're super excited. We just want to talk a little bit to start about Docs for Developers. Got a chance to, to read it as well and thought it was a wonderful resource that was missing in the industry. But yeah, I'm just curious to hear kind of a little bit more of the, the backstory, how it all came together. And yeah, maybe if there was inspiration for the ragtag group of folks that got together to work on it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If I remember, Eric, you were one of our beta readers just before the release. Yep. And you were one of, I think, our critical sanity checks to make sure that what we were writing was actually necessary and going to be well-received. And your feedback there was really valuable. So thank you for that. It was so cool to see so many people kind of from the community really putting their years and years of wisdom down in print. Like, I think it's a, a wonderful resource. Well, I guess I could talk a little bit about how the book got started, if that's of interest. I wish I could say that it was based out of some noble impulse to elevate the field as a whole. But really, I think like all of the the projects where I've seen real momentum over the course of my career, it was born out of annoyance. It was born out of the frustration of having to have the same conversation multiple times in a row. In some ways, it was a testament to the value of documentation itself and the one-to-many support relationship that a good documentation provides. So it was born out of a conversation between Jared Bati and myself where we kept on noticing in open source that we were having the same conversations, having the same, this is how you do this. This is what good documentation looks like in open source and from open source to a documentation in general for software projects. And the conversation went over the course of maybe three or four months. It would be really good if there was a resource out there that we could point people to. Oh no, you know, we could write that resource. Oh, we've got to write that resource. And so that when we realized, I think that we were going to be the ones who had to create this resource, everything sort of fell into place from there. I love your book so much. I love it because before documentation docs for developers, it was like, okay, I need information for metrics. I need information for how to do user research. I need information architecture. And all was just not in one place. And so your book, it's one resource and someone has a map on how to create documentation end to end. They know how to begin it and they know how to keep up that iteration process that did not exist before the book. 
Well, cheers. That was honestly, I think, what helped focus our original ideas into the book that went to print was realizing that there are some really good resources out there for technical documentation, but all of them assume that you already know how to write, that they begin from the presumption of competence as someone able to document things well. And that's not a presumption that we can safely make. Not that people are incompetent, but that we all come to these projects with different levels of skill, different backgrounds. We come with our own motivations and we can't make any assumptions about any common levels of skill or training. And so I think that's one of the most valuable things that the book does is that it is that end-to-end journey. It starts with the idea that the writing is not a self-evident skill. It is not automatic that when you write, you will achieve what you're setting out to do without intention and without some of the basics of the skill of writing behind it. So if there's one piece of feedback I think that we've gotten consistently, it's been that it is exactly what people needed. So I'm thrilled to hear that that matches your experience. Yeah, it definitely does. Because like a lot of documentation I've come across, especially in open source, it just gives you TMI, too much information. Sometimes it gives you like a history lesson. It's like, wow, I just want to do the things. I could just like make this cool app. And I think the book really got to that. It really got to the jobs that need to be done. And it really had empathy for the user and really wanted the writer to consider the user and consider the user had jobs that they wanted to get done. Oh, that warms my heart because that is exactly what we set out to do. So, yay. So do you mind telling us which sections of the book did you write slash edit? Because I know it's a group effort. So just a little peek into our process as writers of this book, we sort of collectively agreed on a table of contents. What needed to be in it shaped the set of chapters that were going to be in this book and then parceled them out to each other. And I had originally been slated to write the chapter on metrics. And my goal is that none of that should be obvious. It was only obvious to us. So I'm actually really pleased that it's not obvious who wrote what, because that means that as an editor that I have succeeded. So that was my primary role in the book was to provide consistency of tone. I put together most of the skeleton of the metrics chapter, but then didn't actually write it. That I think The metrics chapter ended up being Jared, I want to say. So my own writing is everywhere and nowhere in the book, sort of simultaneously. There's no one particular chapter I can point to and go, that's mine. But arguably, no one else can either, even the people who wrote those chapters. Collaborative effort. Very much so. I know that you did some editing for Riley. What is good technical editing? What does that look like? So I think about... What does editing do in general? Good editing specifically. I think that good editing sharpens ideas. It doesn't remove someone's voice. It doesn't abstract away the writer or the speaker. What it does is it clarifies them. So good editing helps whatever it is that someone is trying to communicate, helps that idea come through more clearly. And I think in technical editing, It's taking away things that distract from that idea. It's the literary equivalent of sharpening a pencil, removing all of the excess, bringing the writing to a fine point. Yeah, I just think about a gem. Like when you see gems in a while or when you're walking about, they don't look all that special, but it really, when you bring it to a juror, they really know how to like sharpen the edges so that it shines and it really brings out the clarity. There's, I don't remember the attribution of the quote, 
But I think of writing and editing as sort of a two-phase process. Write until you have no more to say, edit until you have no more to remove. That's much more eloquent than the uh, one that I know that's right drunk, edit sober. <laughs> I like that. I love this concept of editing. It's something I've always longed for. Like very little of my writing has ever actually been edited in any meaningful way by anyone other than myself. And I think, yeah, the the way you describe this process so poetically, it just makes me wistful. <laughs> uh, well, for what it's worth, I can't edit my own work for anything. So I too long wistfully for a really good editor. But isn't that supposed to be that way? Isn't the point of editing is for your work to be viewed and critiqued and sharpened with fresh eyes? Because you get too close, you're too close to the work if you're editing your own uh, writing. Mm. Yeah, no, this this kind of touches on on one of the things I know you mentioned that you've been thinking about, which is like, how is maybe reviewing kind of doc reviews and maybe in an open source contest pull requests around documentation? Is that a form of editing or do you think about that in a similar way? I don't know that I've ever explicitly made that link, but now that you say it, it, it seems self-evident that, I mean, that is what code reviews and doc reviews do is sharpen an idea into, or like I pick your metaphor, sharpen, clarifies an idea into its clearest form. So yeah, I guess I, I do think of it that way. To go back to the book though, I thought one of the chapters I really connected with was the one on feedback. There was a great talk by Christy at Write the Docs Portland back in like 2018, somewhere along there about feedback, about how to really kind of ask, how do you know, like put something out into the world in a way that is like setting it up for effective feedback. And I thought this book also just captured that wonderfully. Like, how do you ask for feedback effectively? And then how do you give it? <laughs> and then how do you mm -hmm. integrate it? Right. And I, I really, that was one of my personally, my favorite chapters, because I think that's something people really struggle with is they just be like, Hey, can you review this? How much depth, what kind of review, what are you looking for? High level ideas? Are you looking for grammar? <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I, I really loved that, that section as well. Cause I think PR review, doc review kind of stuff can get in a similar fashion, it needs that kind of contextualization so that it's an effective form of communication between a group. I was so glad to hear that chapter is useful. You know, I think about feedback and about requesting feedback in some ways as an extension of the questions that we ask in documentation. What does the person who's reading this need? What is going to be the most helpful to them? What are the words that they use? What language will they be able to hear in a way that maximizes the benefit to them? So in some ways, it's giving feedback is, for me, it's like an extension of the process and the practice of technical documentation itself. Yeah. And it's one of those things where each org has its best practices, but it wasn't like written in a book. If there wasn't like a comprehensive, hey, how to get feedback, it's always like, okay, if you have like a readme or you have your documentation on GitHub, then maybe you could like have issues or comments and such. But I think once again, the clarity and putting it in one place just makes it such a valuable book. Thank you. When we published it, I think we all knew that we had written a book that we were satisfied with. You know, there were no regrets or the feeling that we had left anything undone in that particular book. I think we walked away with a sense that we had generated material for at least another one and a half books just from what we had done in that process alone. But we all walked away, I think, with a very strong sense of satisfaction and accomplishment with the book. And I'm happy to say that it appears to be sort of slowly generating a gentle and helpful life of its own. It's been, what, six months since we published it. And if you want to go to that sort of most sorted of metrics, sales, 
it appears to be taking quite a long and picking up in sales over time. I think one of my own frustrations with the publishing industry is how difficult it is to get actual sales numbers. But we just got our most recent set of sales numbers through uh, combined formats and combined vendors. There's, I think, about 10,000 copies of the book out in the world, or at least there were as of the end of last year. So it's, it's ticking along quite nicely. Congratulations. Not surprising at all. Full disclosure, I actually buy your book for all my team members. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Seriously. And it's like, okay, you have to read this book in order for you to get a feel of writing documentation. What is the purpose of it? How do you know it? What does it mean if it's good, if it's bad? Like giving those real metrics and words and such. So Thank you for writing this. I don't know. I spend so much time in this interview just saying thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not the worst outcome. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it doesn't suck. It's not terrible. Speaking of writing a book, I mean, I feel like that's almost like the cliche of like someone who you like, you literally wrote the book on the topic, right? I, <laughs> like, I, I think it's it shows that, you know, kind of. At this point in your career, you know, you've had a, had a few different jobs and I think your, your role within the organization has maybe changed. And it, it looks like you're getting into more of that kind of management, that leadership position. And I know one of the things that you've been thinking about is that kind of mentoring and, and how do you bring people up into this kind of ecosystem in this role? So like, do you have any thoughts on kind of what effective mentoring looks like within a documentation organization? Oh my gosh. That's such a timely question. It's one of the things that I think about the most right now is creating, or I guess what an effective, scalable track of mentorship might look like. Because right now, unfortunately, all of my mentorship looks like one-to-one relationships outside of the context mm-hmm. of the book. And that's not scalable. You know, Zach as a service doesn't scale. So I think about the next books I'd like to see. And one of those books is how to become and grow as a technical writer. That's a one-to-many relationship of um, supported training that I'd love to see. So that might be my next book. I think about writing that book a lot, but I would also highly encourage if someone else has that book in them, please write that book as well. (laughs) Like far from a terrible outcome to have multiple good sources of training in our field. Just as a side note. Audience call to action. (laughs) Yes. And as long as we're talking about audience calls to action, I would smash the buy now button for any book that really delved into documentation metrics in a very crunchy and very fine-grained way. If I were reviewing CFPs for documentation conference, (laughs) those are the tracks (laughs) that I would auto-approve for inclusion. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here. When it comes to mentoring, what does good mentoring look like? Oh, gosh. I think that good mentoring looks like a few things. One of the end goals for me of mentoring is that everyone that I mentor becomes better than I am at doing it. To be a a pathway by which people reach a level of competency that I have not yet attained. That to me is, I think, probably the biggest indicator of success as a mentor is that people that I've had some role in training, even if it's just, you know, like introducing them to people that they hadn't met yet. Even if it's just that sort of single serving one-off mentorship opportunity, and that's what launches them into their amazing career, that to me is really successful mentorship. So 
building capacity is a key quality of mentorship. Another piece I would say is we don't talk about this nearly enough, I think. It's one of the other things on my mind about the profession in general is the ethics of documentation. And there are ethics in our field, even though we don't necessarily talk about them in a formally defined way. But I think about one of the principal ethics of our profession being tell the truth. And good documentation tells the truth. It tells the truth in a way that is timely and helpful. You know, I think about difficult information. One of the tests of whether you need to say something. Does this need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me right now? Is that Tony Robbins? I forget. But I think about good documentation the same way. Does this need to be said? Does this need to be said in this way? Does this need to be said in this way right now? And documentation that stales out no longer meets that test. It's no longer telling the truth. Documentation that is incomplete or overly complete, too much information, that doesn't meet the test of telling the truth in a helpful way, in a timely way. So that's one of my sort of shadow goals as a mentor is to make sure to impart good ethical thinking and ethical awareness of documentation as a practice. Yeah, it feels like almost like a, a philosophy of docs or, or something along those lines. Right. I don't know if I would call it a philosophy because I really look at it as an applied discipline. Ethics are mm-hmm. not about how one thinks, they're about how one acts. I like to focus on what does this Sure, if it changes how you think about it, great, you know, in the sense that actions are downstream from thoughts. But, but, but um, the actions matter, right? Like it, yeah, right, by matter. whatever way that you get to that action, you know, that's sort of an individual journey. Zach, I'm blown away because I think you uncovered something that I just could not articulate that was inside of me for years about incomplete documentation or documentation out for both. It was something about it where it felt like this is me dumbing it down. I'm sorry. I just didn't care. And I think that is an ethical issue. It didn't care. It wasn't careful enough. It wasn't inclusive to like at least be curious enough if the end user was able to understand. And I think this really gets at like my annoyance because it felt like, yeah, it felt like exclusion. Yes. I don't think that's dumbing it down at all. I think you have hit on one of the key obstacles to technology, to software as a whole, as expressed through documentation, is in some ways, documentation doesn't exist for its own sake. It doesn't arise free from the bias of the people who write it. So how bias is baked into machine learning, into algorithmic operation. Documentation is also one of those places where bias, where indifference, where blind spots culturally exist and create obstacles. In some ways, it's easier when those obstacles are visible because then it's easier to identify them, to understand their scope and remove them. But so many of those obstacles are invisible. So all of the systems of bias, of oppression, those exist and diminish the quality of documentation when they affect it. So yeah, I think that focusing on the impact of documentation on people's lives, not just are they able to accomplish this task, but has this left a person better off in some way? Has it welcomed them? Has this documentation improved their capacity? Has it empowered them? Not just in one particular skill, but in what that skill lets them do. Why does this technology matter? What are they trying to do with this technology that we're documenting? To the extent that documentation helps people get to a place where they have more tools at their disposal, more understanding at their disposal. 
I think it's very much a tool for inclusion and for success. And that's also one of the things that brings me joy. Uh, I've been in this profession for 25 years and it's hard to connect to joy sometimes in enterprise software. But one of the things that I love about it, what, what does help me connect with joy is knowing that enterprise software, people read, a lot of people read documentation in enterprise software. So that's a lot of opportunities to help other people. And that's what brings me joy, I think, is knowing that, that it's an opportunity to lift up others at scale. That was very beautiful. <laughs> I felt like that was just like the manifesto of documentation or something, right? Really the kind of like ethical grounding. <laughs> that was really I very think about a keynote. <laughs> well, so I guess one of my questions for you, who else is having these conversations? Because I feel like these conversations have to be happening somewhere, but they're not happening in the most visible places in documentation as either like a thoughtful profession or as an applied practice. So I guess, are you hearing these conversations elsewhere? And how can we start raising the profile of them? Because I feel like they're important conversations to have right now. Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have this podcast, Let's Talk Docs. Because yeah, I, too short. You know, I don't know if we're at the bar that you've set yet, but it, it is a wonderful, a wonderful bar. Okay. I am not implying that we're there yet. But the goal is to get there. I don't know. You opened the door and I just walked through it. Given the earlier reverse pitch, I will also say that certain conferences are only things that are on the stage or what people submit to those conferences. <laughs> if, if there are conversations that should be happening in more visible places. <laughs> but uh, uh, I will take that to heart. But no, I, I mean, I guess the, the closest that I've come to these similar space is there was a conference called Open Source and Feelings, maybe about five or six years ago. And oh I actually- Oh my God, that sounds I, great. Is it still around? I, no, I think it only ran for a couple of years. And I actually gave a talk that was titled Documentation is Empathy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, oh my gosh. And, and talked a little bit. And I don't know if I said it as eloquently, but that was certainly some of the themes of my talk was around documentation as inclusion, how you're lowering the barrier to entries in, into the profession, into these spaces. But yeah, I don't think that's like a thread that's been picked up on. There's small pockets of these conversations happening, but I don't know if there's a space for them, I guess, as that currently exists. So mm. I think we need to be mindful of that space. And I think that's what really gets, and that's a bigger problem in the open source space. I mean, we're still a bunch of geeks just talking to each other and we really need to reach out. And I really found this to be true when I moved to DC. Because when I moved to DC, like you had a bunch of government folks they were into innovation. Heck, they worked in innovation departments, but they were not having conversations about open source. And I think that it's just really imperative for us to get out of our bubbles in Discord or bubbles in chats and go to places, go to like meetups where it's mostly government folks. I think that's something I experienced when I was like in blockchain. You had a lot of people from the federal government because this was their actually introduction to open source projects was blockchain. So I think just going to these, finding these watering holes and or going to conferences that aren't technology specific, like be it JavaScript, be it Python, and go to conferences that are about like just ton of, I keep using the word innovation, but it's true, like innovation or job skills of the future is another big topic. So going to those places and say, hey, you have a lot of thought about policy, you have a lot of thought about theory, 
But here is what we're doing in open source in terms of like technology. And here's a documentation that we have in mind, or let's talk to you. So when we do write documentation, we are thinking about that person who is getting a master's in innovation. So I think we need to do more of that, to be quite honest with you, and just get out of bubbles. I think anything that connects us as practitioners in this profession is a good opportunity. I think back to 2018 and the one year that Write the Docs Cincinnati existed. And it was a real eye-opener for me, being somebody who lives on the West Coast of North America. It's one thing to know that one lives in a bubble and another thing to experience the friction at the edge of that bubble. And Cincinnati, being much closer to the East Coast of the United States, had folks attending, I would say, mostly from the East Coast. I don't know if that matches the actual attendance demographics, but that was very much my experience of it was that it was people that I didn't see at other conferences. And the culture and the community around documentation and around professional practice on the East Coast was very, very different. So Portia, to your point, I agree. I would love to see more of these conversations, more avenues of these conversations happening. And I'd love to see more formal and informal ways for us to connect across the fields of our practice. Just a little inside baseball there. We actually, in 2020, we were going to do a Write the Docs in the DC area, which would have been a very, very government heavy, I think. And a lot of folks from that space. That's missing in so many of these conversations is Washington, DC, because they really do have their own way of thinking. And DC was so educational for me because I got most of my education of what docs and open source was was from like going to meetups, being in the West Coast, being in Portland. But when I went to DC, my gosh, like it was very much suits. It's very buttoned up. It's very much title-based. It's very much um, you are asking for permission. I mean, you're not asking for forgiveness at all because you won't have a chance to ask for forgiveness. Mm. It's considered insulting. It's considered disrespect to do something without permission. And these cultural clashes, you don't really see. I feel like in a lot of these Discord channels and I'm part of our open source. Mm-hmm. Like I see it a bit because people pull me from wherever I'm at and like, hey, Portia, we know you do this. We have questions. And I'm like, there should be other people reaching out to folks. I think about one of my favorite Rihanna McNamara quotes. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission, but if you fix the problem, you need neither. And I wonder how that would play in D.C. Based on what you're saying, Portia, it sounds like that might have no cultural resonance there. What I would also say, too, is nonprofits. So I had a chance to go meet a lot of nonprofits based in D.C. And once again, it seems like they did not have a relationship with like open source. It's very much about we wish we had this app. We wish we, we had this technology to this thing. All we need to do is just raise this money and get this programmer to make magic happen where we did not. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe JavaScript, Python community, whatever. I think we're all guilty. We need to go to these nonprofits and have like hackathons and have, hey, here are your problems. Which problems can we solve with technology? Because not all problems can be solved with technology. Let's build. Or when you're writing documentation, think about what about that really curious program manager in a nonprofit who was dabbling in Node and who wants to know how to make that bridge between Node and maybe food deserts. I think that's kind of where documentation comes in, is that bridge. Listening to you, 
What comes to mind is a Twitter conversation from the last 48 hours. Noah Kantrovitz is a contributor in open source who's uh, very senior in his own career and notes some of the roadblocks to funding open source and participation and contribution to open source because it is unfortunately inherently against some company's interest to have for example, clear documentation. If you are a company who provides managed services, clear documentation isn't necessarily going to be what generates the need for a managed service. Noah's particular angle was that the promotion process at the most senior levels of technology depends on packaging and promotion. That becomes almost like a political cycle of election. I don't want to do violence or with an overly reductive summary, but that conversation, I think, concurs with you, Portia. And I, I think it's an excellent conversation to read about some of the practical barriers to participating more widely in open source. It's admittedly a very narrow window of obstacles, but it's a really insightful conversation that has sort of spun out several other threads from it. Zach, I'm going to put you on a spot. I read that thread. Could you get into more details? Because I don't think I really understood the thread. I appreciate the invitation, but I have to decline because without it in front of me, I would be guessing at a summary and it's against my own ethics of good documentation practice. (laughs) (laughs) Fair, fair. I can attempt to abstract from it and not maybe argue the same point, but it, it really was kind of a story of like the incentives within organizations. And I think it was more about profit motive versus unmeasurable value that's created. And I I think to your point earlier around metrics and these various ways of measuring impact around documentation, right? I think we are in a very similar boat. I hear we had an earlier conversation on the podcast with someone thinking about kind of developer relations, community work, documentation, how did like just the, the lack of measurement, the ability to put a revenue number behind the impact that you're having, I think is consistently just a, a struggle for advocating for yourself, for promotion, but also for resources, for headcount, for all these various parts within an organization. And I, I don't think I'm as much summarizing the thread, but kind of trying to take the, the overarching concept of, yeah, the, the ineffability of the value you provide and how that is hard to convey to people who don't have the same context or maybe are in a, a position of power with, with a different background. <laughs> right. I think that's a really fair summary and a really accurate representation of what's at the root of that particular thread. I will say as a spoiler alert, I am applying to open source and finance to that conference in London with a topic about changing minds from documentation as a cost center to an investment center. Because the value of documentation, there is not always a clear cause and effect line between money spent and the value that documentation provides. So one of the things I think that we can do to shift thinking around that is to provide a clearer and more precise set of metrics and understanding for what the value of documentation apps actually does. And in those more ineffable qualities, ways of qualitatively measuring them if quantitative measure isn't possible or easy or reliable that qualitative measure does have some value and is in some ways going to be more accurate of a measure of what a technical writer and what good documentation provides. So 
I mean, somebody could technically snipe me, depending on when this podcast airs, somebody could snipe me to that CFP. But no, that's one of the things you have, I think about as well. I think you have the, the street cred. I don't know if they do anonymous uh, CFP, but yeah. Sounds, sounds true. Like, I think, I th- I think your, your experience will come through, I'm sure, in the writing. <laughs> Can I make a hard turn? And Zach, I Probably. would be missed if I didn't ask you this question. What's the secret sauce in Stripe documentation? Oh my gosh, the secret sauce to know. So I think it's a couple of things. I think it's the combination is really what I would point to. The combination of very well-funded tooling for documentation and a culture that is in some ways relentless about focusing on user impact making organization level, product level decisions about feature availability, feature sets based on how well it serves Stripe's users. And the importance of that metric of user satisfaction and of user empathy as a driving force, not just in documentation, but in product development itself, I think is one of the keys to Stripe's documentation success. But I also think it is the combination of that ethic because many places have that ethic. I think it's the combination with well-funded doc ops, let's call it, the actual platforming and tooling that delivers the experience of documentation. It's just a cracking crew. It's uh, really amazing folks. And the combination of investment. (laughs) Yes, it is an investment. Exactly. Stripe has invested, I think, very wisely and very powerfully in the production aspect of the documentation environment. I'm going to ask you to get specific. I have a bunch of money. Let's say, I don't know, let's put a, I don't know, 2 billion. And all that goes into documentation. You mentioned well-funded tooling. I have 2 million. What am I supposed to be spending money on in terms of tools? So I guess for the first with the caveat that I am not a qualified financial advisor and I cannot in any legal or binding way give you advice about how to spend money. And plus you just shouldn't take my advice. What I say and $5 will get you a good coffee at Starbucks or wherever it is that you happen to, to shop. With that $2 million, the first question that comes to mind is not where you should spend it, but what are you trying to do? What are your documentation goals? Who is reading your documentation? Are you starting from scratch? Are you trying to shift an existing platform? What are the things that are working for you already? I think with 2 million people look at large budget numbers and they think, oh, we'll just do this. And I think there's a precursor to that to not fix what isn't broken. So I would ask, you know, like what's not broken already? What do you want more of? What do you want less of? What are the, the problems that you're actually trying to solve? Because when you have clarity, I think over what is important, what your actual goals are, that tends to settle out into priorities for budget very quickly. In the times when I have had to allocate budgets with lots of zeros, I think the first time I looked at like a six-figure budget, my poor little mind just sort of went, <laughs> because I didn't know what to do with it. It was you know, so much money. It turns out it's not that much money, at least not at a, at a corporate scale of things. But the only things that were helpful in terms of setting priorities of actually categorizing and prioritizing expenditures was what is actually important? What are the problems that I'm trying to solve? What should I not solve? Who is going to be better off as a result of this expenditure? I guess, what do I want to be able to say after all of this money is spent and after all of this investment is settled? What are the things that I want to say are true as a consequence of doing this? And that tends to be very clarifying. And then the actual allocation of dollars becomes like a detail as opposed to like a genuine question. It's, you know, 
once things get to the detail level, you just do it, you wade through it and you figure it out. But it's figuring out what matters, I think, that becomes the really or that's for me, at least that's the really important challenge. It was a, a wonderful vision of the product process. You can spend a lot of motion on building the wrong thing and it will right, not right. do you any good. <laughs> but is there anything else that you wanted to mention at all? Well, I will shamelessly plug the book. You can buy it at your bookseller of choice. Honestly, at this point, the most valuable thing that you can do if you've read the book is to leave a review. One of the things that I ask for and still remain sort of unsatisfied in getting is how could this book have been better? What did it not have? Whenever I have to write content that has some limitation on space, one of the things that I think about is not only what do I want to give people? What is the positive feedback that I want to get from this? What is the positive feedback that I am aiming to hear for a piece of content? But also, what is the negative content that I am aiming to hear from this? And usually, it's almost always, I wish there was more of it. The whole showbiz adage, leave them wanting more, where people have enough to give them what they need, but not enough to glut them. So I am not yet glutted on critical reviews. So if you could please leave more critical (laughs) reviews and talk about what do you want to see more of? That would be incredibly helpful. Buy the book, review it. Tell us what it was missing. You have homework for people instead of a plug. Gosh, (laughs) not so depressing to think of it that way, but uh, it is unmasked. There it is. Zach, thank you so much for spending time with us talking about documentation, the ethics of documentation, mentoring your wonderful book. Like this has been a real treat. Oh, it's been a treat for me too. Portia, thank you so much for having me on the show. Eric, thank you for having me. It's a delight. Yeah, just wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, uh, Portia, take us out here. Thank you for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite app. You can find us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Share and like this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have any ideas for future episode topics, or if you would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at letstalkdocs at sustainoss.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, keep writing and shipping those docs.